start to get an itch and you start to scratch. Skin sores. Kidney disease. Rheumatic heart disease. Rheumatic fever. Frosted scabies. Streptococcal infection. Preventable. Treatable. That's where all the sickness comes from. Though long banished to the history books in the modern urban setting, scabies is a disease that is an everyday reality in the remote Indigenous communities of the Northern Territory. One Disease is a not-for-profit organisation that aims to eliminate crusted scabies, the most serious form of the condition, as a public health concern. In this podcast series, we scratch the surface to reveal the history and origin of scabies, current treatment strategies, and just how One Disease plans to achieve their ambitious goal. Scratching the surface, the scabies story. G'day, I'm Brad Firebrace. Welcome to Studio G in Darwin for another episode of Scratching the Surface, the Scabies Story, brought to you by One Disease. As usual, I'm joined by Jeffrey Jacko Angeles. How you going, Brad? And our guest today is Professor Bart Curry from Menzies School of Health Research and Royal Darwin Hospital. Bart specialises in tropical infectious diseases and has extensive experience in dealing with scabies here in the top end. How are you, Bart? Good, thanks, Brad. But let's start at the beginning with the history of scabies. The first recorded collection of a scabies mite here in Australia was from a wombat in Tasmania in 1804. Do animals actually spread human scabies? Yeah, Brad, there's a lot of work that's gone on over the years to try and understand how much diversity there is within scabies mites. We know that scabies have been around in different animal species for many hundreds of years. So one of the big questions that has always been of concern is, well, how important is that for disease in humans? And you sit down, you listen to people, you listen to their thoughts on, on these these issues, and they say, well, how much should I be worried about my dogs, for instance? In, in, because there's lots of dogs in communities, and dogs are very important for people and uh, their families, and they become part of families. And my understanding is that pretty much every dog in a community has a name and belongs to a particular personal family group. One of the things that came up was, it was well, well, how often are the scabies mites from humans getting onto dogs and then maybe even multiplying on dogs and getting back to humans? And the way to answer that is, in fact, through science, where you actually do molecular fingerprinting, which is the same as what you would do in forensic cases, and you see that on the TV and everything. So you actually look at the DNA or the genetic material of the mites from the dogs and of the mites from the families in the communities. And this was actually someone who worked with Jacko, uh, uh, Shelley Walton, all those years ago. She took four years at Menzies to answer this question. And so what she did was with various colleagues and communities, she got people, veterinarians and, and community members sending in mites that have been collected from dogs. And then also we were getting mites that were collected from humans in the same communities. We also at that stage were collaborating with people in the United States. So our colleagues in the US uh, sent us over DNA from scabies mites in the United States from dogs. Shelley was able to look at mites from two communities in both dogs and humans and also mites from dogs in the United States. And we got some mites from humans. The bottom line is a very clear signal and that is that the DNA from the dog mites in the remote Arnhem Land communities that we looked at were more closely linked to the DNA from the dogs in the Americas and the mites from humans in indigenous communities 
here in the top end were more similar to the mites from the humans. So what this showed us was these mites or scabies mites adapt to different hosts, so host adapted. That really was a pretty solid bit of evidence that really the focus for human scabies must be on detecting and treating scabies in humans, which is a very important story. In other words, if you didn't have any dogs in the community, you would still have high rates of scabies where you have the what is called the primordial conditions or the things that set up transmission of scabies, which is overcrowding as the number one thing. Yeah, I want to go back to the old poor bugger, hairy-nosed wombat having the scabies mite. So if we just say, okay, when they arrived here, we had dogs and rabbits and sheeps and goats and foxes that came to our country, you know. So one of those animals possibly could have infected the hairy-nosed wombat, you know, and Aboriginal people used to eat them, so whether there was a transmission there. However, I want to even go back further, and I think, of course, it might not be a mite that came from animals, I think that possibly it could have been brought here from humans. And when we look back at the early arrival times and the conditions that those men on those ships coming here all closely packed together, I could imagine that possibly that's where the scabies came from. So what do you reckon, Bart, on that? Yeah, look, I think Jeffrey's uh, hit on an important point, and that is that historically... When people have looked back at First Nations people when uh, colonisers came in, there was no suggestion that scabies was present in traditional living situations in remote communities or mm. around Australia. There's no doubt at all that scabies was already very well known for a number of centuries in European communities where they lived in cities with a lot of filth and mm. uh, people living in terrible crowding, particularly in poor socioeconomic circumstances. So in Victorian England, for instance, so scabies was well known. It's almost inevitable that scabies would have come over on at least some of the ships coming over. So that's in, in, in the context, I guess, of Southern Australia. So mm. when you look at, at the history of health of First Nations people in Northern Australia, there's really very, very little suggestion of scabies being present. The first recognition potentially from the literature of scabies in remote top-end communities was sometime potentially after World War II. So that's in mm. the second half of last century. That was another point and, I was going to pick up and, during and the so, wartime years. Yeah. And so what, what it's known is, is that scabies becomes a big issue during warfare because you have troops all crowded mm. together in trenches and, in, yeah. and there, there's no washing and difficult living conditions. And there were many, many um, troops, particularly from the United States. There was a lot of people in northern Australia. So... There is a little bit of evidence, and it's not definitive, but it's 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 certainly plausible that scabies was introduced to remote top-end communities, such as in Arnhem Land, in World War II and the decade after, from people coming in from overseas related to military activities. There are a lot of diseases which can clearly be traced back to uh, importation with colonisation, and there are a few things which are clearly have always been present in traditional uh, living communities. And I think scabies is one of the ones which has been introduced and potentially really not that long ago for us in the top end. Scratching the surface, the scabies story. Brought to you by One Disease. Yeah, I read something. It was the... Um 
poverty-stricken days of Melbourne, say in the early 1900s, when probably scabies, and one of the things that I was working there at Menzies was rheumatic fever was really rife in those populations. In the early 1900s, the places where there was so much poverty in Melbourne as a town, where they had lots of these uh, strep A or streptococcal germs and rheumatic fever, and certainly scabies was Im- Im- very important, and they also had problems with at various times with plague and other things. All these infectious diseases of poverty, that was, I'll just tell you, because it relates to football, of course, as everything in the world does, Jacko, because <laughs> oh, that yeah. was Collingwood, Carlton and Fitzroy, right? Yeah. But not the Blue Bloods of Melbourne. Very different. Well, so, go for Carlton. Why didn't you throw in someone else, like <laughs> Western Bulldogs or something like that? I well, mean. Western Bulldogs was out in the rural areas back then because that was sort of the that <laughs> yeah. was like like way out. And <laughs> and as for Geelong, Geelong probably only had about fifty people in it back then. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but the point, in all seriousness, so we know that scabies can get eliminated. Historically, it has been eliminated in big cities only to come back when there's been civil unrest and wars and famine and other things and big population movements. Mm. Um, at the moment, scabies is a big issue in the slums of some of the cities in Central and South America, Rio and some of these other big cities where there's so much crowding in the favelas, but it doesn't have to always be there and it can be dealt with through a combination of community desire and knowledge and control with quality healthcare science and delivery of programs. I want to go back to your comment about Melbourne. Now, it required a whole public health response, and you did comment on it just a while ago about the rareness of some illnesses. Mm. So scabies, in the context how it is up here in the Northern Territory in the Aboriginal population, is quite rare mm. down in the southern parts of Australia or mainstream Australia, as is rheumatic fever. Mm. just appears to me that the same sort of process or response in that regard just didn't quite happen in the Aboriginal population as such or did the service, as I used to say in my cheeky days in the oldest days, stop at the last traffic light? What you're now getting at is the issue about the primordial, what's called the primordial, all the antecedent or the things that set up all of these, these problems. And it is about service delivery, as you said, but also it's very much about crowding and it's about housing and a lot of emphasis on housing you you know we're seeing it a lot in the press and and the more the better really because housing is essential housing with adequate water supply sanitation rooms the amenities working properly that ability to be able to live in a situation where the transmission of infections which be they the parasites such as scabies parasites or be they bacteria such as the strep bacteria or such as viruses you know, living conditions are very important to all of that. And also the resources for individuals to control their own lives. So in other words, to be able to have the wherewithal to sort out the washing of the kids and the, the ability to have functioning showers and toilets and all that sort of stuff. Crusted scabies is also called Norwegian scabies uh, because the, the condition was first described in Norway in the mid-19th century. Um, can you tell us more about this serious condition? Yeah, so crusted scabies, which is the main focus of one disease, is a very rare but very important subset of uh, scabies patients, very debilitating condition. It occurs in very much a minority of people who get scabies. So when most of us get scabies, you have a limited number of mites that get onto your body and two things happen. One is after a few weeks, you start to get an itch 
and you start to scratch. Now, that scratching will often kill the female mites before they've had time to lay that many eggs. And in addition, over time, and this is over a period of not just weeks but probably months, eventually the majority of people will develop some level of immunity to scabies if they've had a number of infections. So that for what we call a normal scabies infection, you may have an itch over a lot of your body, but the actual mites that are present causing that itch are small in number, certainly probably in most cases less than 20. And they may often be in just sites, say, between the finger webs or maybe around the lower back or up around the shoulder, armpits and areas or on the feet. But you're actually scratching your whole body because the immune response leads to an inflammation that causes an itchiness. So you feel itchy all over. And as people know with scabies, they wake up in the middle of the night scratching and scratching. Mm. But that individual with ordinary scabies, which is bad enough because of the itch, they may only have a small number of mites. Unfortunately, in a small number of people, the body does not develop any immune response against the mites. And these mites continue to lay eggs. The female mites burrow, lay eggs, and those larvae hatch, and you get a replicating cycle that builds the numbers up to very large numbers. So numbers that are hard to actually believe, they could have certainly over a million individual mites on their body. Whereas, as I said, with the ordinary scabies, there may only be up to, say, anywhere between five and 20 mites. These are people who have absolutely no uh, development of immunity against the mites. And so there's what's called unfettered replication or just continual replication of the mites. It builds up and builds up such that the layers of the skin start to respond by developing a lot of this thickness, which is called keratin, which is really similar to what's in fingernails. So you get this really thick skin where the mites are present. And with these people with crusted scabies, it becomes physically an issue for them because they become shame potentially of, of how they look mm -hmm. because it, while it affects mainly the arms and legs and maybe the back and buttocks, it can also start to affect the ears and the face. So not only is that individual heavily infected, they become susceptible to getting secondary bacterial infections through fissures or crusts in this thick skin. Mm. They got severe bacterial infection which was very different from ordinary scabies where people are itching, but it's a limited infection with the scabies mite. So that was the first thing is that as individuals, they are at great risk of, of getting complications, which can be life-threatening. But the second aspect of those individuals with the severe crusted scabies was they have such large numbers of mites that these mites get shed not just from their skin through their clothes, but into the environment. So whereas for transmission of scabies, ordinary scabies from person to person, you have to have close body contact. You literally need the baby or the child very close to the mother, like kangaroo holding and all of that. And, and that's why it's such an issue for mums and kids because they are close to each other or it's actually well recognised to be sexually transmitted as well in, in couples, for instance. With crusted scabies, the number of mites are so great that people may shed it in their own house such that other people in their environment can then pick up these scabies mites from that individual with crusted scabies. So this led to the term of core transmitter. And, and one disease have, have made a good analogy here is that someone with severe crusted scabies may be 1,000 times more likely to infect other people than someone with ordinary scabies. So the whole agenda for one disease was, well, if we can target and eliminate as a public health problem crusted scabies, we will break at least those core transmitter aspects of the cycles of transmission.
Scratching the surface, the scabies story. To scratch a little deeper, head to OneDisease.org. When we first started work on crusted scabies, you know, more than 20 years ago, we realised how important it was because the mortality or the death in, in these people was as much as 20%, one in five of them dying within five years of, of us knowing that they had crusted scabies. Now, this is what influenced me to feel this really needs a lot more work because these people dying weren't old people. Uh, some of the ones who influenced me greatly who died while I was looking after them in the hospital were only in their 20s. Wow. And I think very frequently of the very first person we ever treated with ivermectin in Australia for crusted scabies. It was actually a drug that had been licensed overseas for a rare, well, it's not rare in Africa where it occurs, it's a, a disease called river blindness. Onchocerciasis is a parasite and mass drug administration with ivermectin had started to be used in the 80s for onchocerciasis in particularly West Africa and was pretty successful. And it got approved for use in Australia as an orphan drug if anyone had onchocerciasis in Australia. That would have to be imported because it's not a disease we have. It would be someone coming back from Africa or a person from Africa as a refugee in Australia. There is evidence that these class of drugs, the avermectins or the ivermectin-like drugs, are very useful in veterinary practice. And this ivermectin, having been licensed in Australia for onchocerciasis, we got a good feeling that that would be a good drug for scabies. It's not approved for use, so medico-legally, to get individual use, you need personal permission from Canberra, from the Therapeutic Goods Administration. So I can remember in 1993, we had a young woman, she was 25 at the time, she was in hospital with severe crusted scabies from one of our remote communities. She came in with severe blood poisoning because of her crusted scabies, the bacteria had got in her skin. She was very, very sick. And we'd tried lots and lots of the topical treatment, which was all we had in those days. We had a number of different topical treatments, some of which are now off the market. We'd only just started using Lyclear or permethrin back then because that was new to Australia. And it wasn't touching her. She still had this terrible skin in the bed shed. She'd often have the sheet up over her head because she was both cold and feeling shame because of the scabies. And so we decided that this was life-threatening in her case. And so she was the first person in Australia to get ivermectin. But because it had never been used before in this context, we gave her a single dose at the right dose, which is a certain number of tablets, one dose. And after a week, absolutely no difference. And then we gave her a second dose after four weeks and still no difference. That was the beginning of our program of using ivermectin. And because of the severity of her crusted scabies, what we then learned over the next 10, 15, and in fact, 20 years was that you need multiple doses in crusted scabies. So from that initial use, we then got to what is the Royal Darn Protocol, which is now used worldwide for crusted scabies, which is a series of up to seven doses of ivermectin spread out over a certain period of time, which together with topical creams and with quality care nursing and uh, bathing and everything else, turns someone with severe crusted scabies into someone with shiny skin, uh, ready to go home back to their scabies-free zone. So, you know, that's taken all that, those years to use a drug which was off-label use with approval from Canberra that in this one person, because we thought she may die. And the sad thing for that story is, is that she did die in her late 20s from complications of crusted scabies. And I remember her so well. And 
you know, that influenced me a lot. Like, we might have got a better once or twice, but she went back to the community and had multiple episodes of crusted scabies and eventually died from complications of crusted scabies. So we weren't good enough in our hospital setting to be able to deal with that. And I'd hope now that with both the scabies-free zones in the remote communities and our hospital guidelines, that that's the sort of thing that should never, ever happen again. I mean, it sort of drives you light at the end of the tunnel, as Jacko said. So, yeah, so that's the treatment. In, and, you know, and that's a medical and a nursing issue for hospital while people in the community are getting things ready for when that person goes back to their family um, in the scabies-free zone, which is the brilliance of the One Disease Program. Scratching the Surface, the scabies story, produced by Skinny Fish Music for One Disease. You can download other episodes or the whole series from your favourite podcast provider. And for more information and resources, head to our website at onedisease.org. Thank you.